I mean, for us, it's been 24-7. Early on in the pandemic, it was about just making sure we had enough gloves and then hand sanitizers and then body suits. I went through a colleague of mine to try to see through some back channel I can find body suits from China and bring them to our little hospital here in the district. Working with our psychiatrists and psychologists and our pastoral care specialists in making sure that we don't overlook a whole nother side of caring. Welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast, where powerful, passionate women from around the world tell it like it really is. I'm your host, Cassandra Ray, recording today from my kitchen again. <laughs> Still in lockdown 2.0 here in London, but hopeful that it will end soon. My guest today is Dr. Manisha Singal. Dr. Singal is the chief medical officer and member of the board for Washington, D.C.'s Bridgepoint Hospital. In addition to being an accomplished critical care doctor serving on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, Manisha is a serial wellness entrepreneur and leading voice on the health benefits of CBD. She co-founded the prestige skincare company, Athera Beauty, and she's the author of the number one best-selling book, The CBD Skincare Solution. She's also currently leading an effort to create one of America's first hospital-based pain management centers using CBD and THC. And for anyone who knows anything about the opioid crisis in America, that is a really exciting development. Our conversation started with CBD, but it quickly expanded to include a much broader conversation about medicine, about health, about medical care, especially in these COVID times. It wasn't until after we spoke that I realized how few prominent medical leaders we hear from are women. It's not that there are none, you know, there are some, but as I go through the list in my mind of the ones I've heard from most, Anthony Fauci, Peter Atia, I mean, even Dr. Oz, most of the ones with, you know, for lack of a better term, brand recognition are men. There's nothing wrong with these men, of course. Anthony Fauci is a hero. He's a national treasure. I'm personally a huge fan and follower of Peter Atia, but in listening to Dr. Singal, even in the subtle ways, she describes how she approaches the practice of medicine with compassion, with empathy, with humility. Well, it does strike me that women perhaps have a valuable contribution to this conversation that isn't as well heard as it should be. I left my conversation with her wiser, more empowered, and also more committed to having more women who practice medicine on this podcast. In a year that's been a lot about our health and the health of those we love, I think we need more voices like hers now more than ever. So for a start, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Manisha Singal. Welcome, Manisha. Thank you so much for being here. Cassandra, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here to talk to you. Very excited to have you. I feel like not just with CBD, but in sort of, there's this whole kind of area as a complete layman to this. I mean, I'm you know, definitely not a doctor, uh, definitely, you know, don't play one on the internet, but um but I feel like we're kind of having this revival in substances that were, you know, once considered just absolutely awful. And we're starting to discover the myriad ways some of them can be applied in um, whether it's skincare or, you know, in pain management, et cetera. What started you off on this path with CBD? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I always say, you know, our greatest needs start from home. You know, what is affecting us? What are our needs? And for me, um, so a few years ago, I had a skin reaction 
to hair dye. Um, I was dyeing my hair for a number of years, had this reaction. And my journey was almost six months of trying to find a way to cure my reactions. I had mm. pain, suffering, redness. Um, consider I couldn't even go to bed without feeling the roughness of my soft sheets against my skin. Was it a, so, can I, can I just, uh, just ask, so was it a reaction you had to like the bleach or a color and do, did it affect your, all of your skin or just your, your scalp? Um, so it was, it wasn't bleach. It was, it's a processing chemical. So anytime you want your hair dye to be darker, mm. so there is a, a chemical, it's a very long name. Um, <laughs> it's found in pretty much all hair dye except mm. for, let's say, henna. Um, and so it started off on my neck and scalp and literally erupted throughout my body. So my, my back, my, my chest, my arms, and even to my legs. So it, oh. was, it was a full-on reaction. And would that have been like a... An autoimmune reaction, or an allergic reaction. So, um, so basically, this what they're thinking is this was an allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, what my dermatologist told me is that this chemical, as long as it's in your hair shaft, it's like you're getting exposed to the chemical until it literally gets washed out or grows out over time. So that's why for me, it took many months to really get over this reaction. Um, but, you know, along the way, you know, I, I saw the dermatologist, I saw an allergist, um, other specialists, they did a skin patch testing. That's how we diagnosed it. And one of the things that really concerned me, even though I'm a doctor and I prescribe medications, is that I was now on a cocktail of drugs, mm -hmm. um, steroids, antihistamines, um, you know, other immunosuppressants. And as many may or may not know, as much as these medications are there to help us, the cure oftentimes is worse than the disease. Yep. It, 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 it runs havoc with your GI system um, and a host of other problems. So for me, as much as I was looking for relief, honestly, my psychological, you know, anxiety it, it just went to a new level. Mm. Um, and I still didn't get the relief that I was looking for. So I was like, all right, I need to find something that's non-toxic. I can't throw more chemicals on a chemical reaction. And around that time, um, I was looking at CBD, at cannabis. Um, I have a university here, a local university called George Washington University. Then a couple of courses on CBD. So I took those courses and I was like, wow, you know, these chemicals are already proven in science to be great anti-inflammatory agents. Skin reaction, irrespective of whether it's an allergic reaction or autoimmune um, reaction, is inflammation of the skin. So Cassandra, I experimented. So I tried mm -hmm. CBD and I was literally shocked. I, I could not believe the relief that I was getting, first and foremost, just from the itching. Um, How, the what was that when you experimented? In what, in what way did you take it? Both um, topically as well as sublingual. So I tried both. First, I tried topical and I immediately, it was almost like putting, um, think of it as aloe vera. Mm. You know, when people would put aloe vera on top of a, a, a skin rash or a cut or a bruise. Mm -hmm. That was how I was applying the topical CBD and I received almost immediate relief. Now, this is my story, but it really spurred the thought process of like, wow, you know, we you know, our, our skin 
is constantly being exposed to chemicals, mm. UV rays, you know, um, internal changes, natural aging. And I was like, well, you know, if I had some topical product that I could use that could keep me from having a reaction, let alone, you know, helping mitigate a reaction, um, that was something I wanted to explore. And um, with a team of people, we confounded our skincare line to really explore the benefits of topical, non-toxic, active botanicals, as well as aligned with CBD itself. Mm. I feel like CBD is kind of the new black, like all of a sudden everything um, has CBD written on it, you know, or, or everybody's sort of talking about different products. I mean, as a consumer who isn't medically trained, how can you differentiate between kind of, you know, medical grade, high quality CBD and what you might just, you know, what somebody might just be slapping on the side of a bottle? That's a great question. Um, Well, here in the United States, that's been our greatest challenge Mm. because, well, let me take a step back. So cannabis sativa is a family of plants. CBD is a chemical. So irrespective if that plant is what we call hemp or marijuana, and, and the differentiator is really just the concentration of the chemicals that are in those plants, but the same plant. So in the United States, we've had a prohibition on really studying exactly the answers to what you just posed to me, um, which has led to a lot of abuse um, in marketing, mm-hmm. in formulations, um, in access. So... That's we need regulations to be able to parse through and have the right regulatory bodies to say, okay, this product is of medical grade. Um, it's pure. It does have other toxins um, in the formulation, and it it has a safety profile that can be used for whatever those needs may be. Um, versus, you know, there's there's thousands of products that are out there, which is just that. Someone has, you know, some product and now they're squirting some CBD oil or um, saying that they put CBD in there and and they don't understand that these chemicals are highly volatile. So, you know, exposure to sunlight, exposure to heat, um, how you formulate it, you can actually lose the very essence of what you are trying to gain value from. Mm. But yeah, so we just don't have the regulation that the good thing that's occurred is a lot of states, again, this is the United States, has taken upon themselves to partner with with um, parties that will do those safety reviews. But right now, we are in the Wild West. We're just scratching the surface of what's medicinal, what's not. Um, a lot of what you will hear are anecdotes and stories that are from thousands of years, let alone the story that I just told you about myself. Mm. But we are also seeing a lot of value with cannabis, um, whether it's, it's isolating the CBD or keeping the plant in its more whole state when it comes to areas like pain management. Um, and there's a lot of data to show that we're making a dent in our opioid crisis because of clinics that are incorporating medical cannabis in their programs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
children who are having 50 to 100 seizure episodes a day, right? Um, the FDA for the first time, and this is coming right from, from the UK itself, I think, I think the company's called GW Pharma or Pharmaceuticals, where they have actually approved cannabis, pure CBD from the UK uh, to be prescribed to these children who are having such horrific times with their seizures. So that was a huge win. Those are epileptic but, children or? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So we're, we're still very early, Cassandra. I'm very hopeful. I'm very excited. Um, you know, I've taken upon myself to self-educate, to meet people around the country, to hear their experiences, whether the mothers or or veterans or advocates or researchers, so I can keep an open mind, not only for myself, but also um, as someone who's licensed in medical cannabis here in the District of Columbia, that I can do my due diligence and partner with my patients in their interest to explore outside of the traditional medical uh, prescription practices. We need, need to take a step back. We need to understand our bodies we need to understand how our bodies are affected and fighting every day against things that cause us inflammation because inflammation drives not only our, our natural aging, but our premature aging. Mm. And, um, you know, and throwing chemicals to affect chemicals is, is probably not the best way to do it, right? Yeah. We need to get away from being a pill-popping society. Um, I mean, that's a pandemic in itself, and that's a whole other topic, but... Yeah, yeah. I want to ask a question that's going to... I've I've always wanted to know about this inflammation thing, because I... Alyssa, are you... Do you know Peter Atia by any chance? Yes, yeah. I follow him closely, yeah. and yes. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Peter Atia. I have to say, I, uh, they're definitely, because his podcast and some of his uh, writings get quite dense for somebody who doesn't have a medical education, so I do my best to follow him, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm a big fan. Um and he talks he has interviewed a lot of people and and brings up this this area of inflammation and i've always wondered this and it's going to make me seem like a real layman but if inflammation is the problem why isn't the simple answer an anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen oh great question well so um so ibuprofen is not so simple when it comes to how our bodies receive it even tylenol so I, one of my favorite phrases is this, there is no such thing as a kind drug. There's equal opportunity for people to have side effects and potentially life-threatening side effects from even ibuprofen. So even though it's an anti-inflammatory, it is a synthetic medication um, that's been used to treat a problem, but it should be it should be for a limited use. It should not be used for chronic purposes. Ibuprofen, I'm, I'm, I'm just picking on ibuprofen. Yeah, it's, yeah that's what I'm, I asked I'm, about. Yeah, yeah it's, I'm, I'm picking on that drug. I can pick on many other drugs. But, you know, ibuprofen we know can cause kidney disease and kidney failure. Ibuprofen we know can cause ulcers in our GI tract and bleeding. Ibuprofen we know, and I'm trying to scare you. No, no. Uh, like I said, it's, it's not that ibuprofen doesn't have its, its place you have to know your body as well. And that's why talking to a mindful professional saying, you know, I'm, I'm having 
these symptoms, what can I do in the short term? Because I may have that level of pain and suffering that I need some relief now. But then what can I do as a lifestyle modification that can maybe help keep me from taking that ibuprofen but making me feel good and living the life that I, I want to live, mm. right? Mm. Tylenol, acetaminophen. Um, actually, one of Peter Tia's closest friends, because they both trained together, John Hopkins is one of my closest friends because we were both in um, residency together, is a world-renowned um, surgeon when it comes to the pancreas and, and, and the liver. And he's saying, he's a Manisha you know, we see patients come to John Hopkins because they've had a life-threatening reaction to acetaminophen, and now they're potentially needing a liver transplant. So that's why we have to find, you know, what mirrors our body naturally. So whether it's the green juices, you know, the plant-based, you know, we call them alternatives, but they really shouldn't be alternatives. They should be our day-to-day. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you brought up inflammation. I mean, this is, for me, um, inflammation and lifestyle modifications. The COVID pandemic. Yeah. What we're finding out in science around the world is what is the mechanism? Why is, is COVID causing us illness? And is it just temporary? Can it be a longer term? And what we're finding out, Cassandra is that this virus is causing inflammation in our body. That is the mechanism of injury, Mm. inflammation. There's a study um, that came out of Germany where they took 10 individuals uh, and then they had a a control group as well. Um, Half of those individuals had tested positive but were able to be at home. Half of those individuals had to be hospitalized and many were on life support. And they scanned, they did an MRI scan of all of their hearts. And none of these individuals ever had any history of heart disease or high blood pressure or or anything that could lead one to say, okay, you know, this is of concern. And all of these individuals considered they found inflammation in the heart muscle. Wow. And this is because of the virus. Some of these individuals developed heart failure. Some of these individuals, they're going to continue to follow because they're not really sure what their story is going to be. Um, and that, that's more recent. That was about a month ago, month, month and a half ago. Mm. Um, why are younger individuals developing blood clots and stroke? It's because of the inflammation in the lining of the blood vessel. Mm. Why were the initial symptomatology of, you know, people having, you know, that cough or shortness of breath, right? The the pulmonary, the lung-related symptoms is because the virus was causing inflammation in the very cells in our lungs, in our breathing tracts. Mm. Kidneys, this was really interesting to me. This was earlier on. This was back in, I want to say even like around in May, early May, I was reading reports and studies that were showing that the virus independently was directly attacking our kidneys. And that's why we're seeing a lot of individuals with kidney failure. And it's because of the inflammation that the virus is causing. 
So now let me flip the script. I've been talking about natural, you know, what can we do with lifestyle and non-toxic natural ways to treat inflammation. Okay. Well, let's go to what we do know, steroids. What we know about steroids, um, and you're probably familiar with the word dexamethasone. It's a very powerful steroid. Mm -hmm. Is that steroids for us was we usually give steroids as a last resort. So if somebody was on life support and everything else was failing, it was almost like a Hail Mary. Okay, mm-hmm. you know what? We really don't know what more to do. Let's go ahead and give the patient steroids and let's see what could happen, right? Um, what we're finding with, with COVID, what we found is that dexamethasone is a lifesaver. It's a very potent anti-inflammatory lifesaver in patients who are fighting for their life with COVID. Wow. Same can't be said if you have another type of infection, whether it's viral bacteria, but for some reason for COVID, or this COVID-19, I should be more specific, this anti-inflammatory powerful drug that otherwise would wreak havoc is actually saving lives. So it's, we're we're learning so much, but Mm. that's why... You know, from a layman's purpose uh, uh, standpoint, if they can understand what inflammation is in a way that's not fearful, that it makes sense, and they can understand what tools that they have in their everyday that could help really move that needle to their benefit, right? Mm. Keep them from having to go to doctors like me in the ICU, yeah. um, which is always the goal, right? And, and and live a much you know better life. And is one of those things... CBD, like a, a daily, you know, would you recommend like almost like a supplement of, of CBD or um, is it, would you recommend CBD more as, you know, to treat something specific for a limited amount of time? Uh, you know, so I, so the, the wonderful thing about cannabis, the cannabis plant is that it's, it's natural um, and it mimics the cannabinoids that our body produces since birth. So it's natural and natural. And to answer your question, um, I, I do believe that there is a role of using CBD as a as a daily complement for health. Um, but I have to also caution people because there's many ways to taking it. And because all of our body chemistries are different, before you do start exploring cannabis or CBD, um, and other cannabinoids into your daily routine, you really need to partner with your doctor and, and, and at least somebody who's open-minded or well-versed in this area and, and educating themselves in this area to see, is there any anything that could cause further risk? For instance, um, I do take uh, CBD daily um, as a uh, sublingual, as a tincture, microdose for me, um, you know, whether it will give me long-term benefits, time will tell. I feel like I'm getting the short-term benefits because it's helping me to feel more calm and relaxed at night. I get a better sleep. I wake up refreshed. Um, my skin looks great. I mean, I know that's mm. vain, but I'm just saying, I, I feel like I'm getting <laughs> my short-term, you know, yeah. short-term benefits. Um, you know, I'm not having, you know, reactions that I typically would, but again, that's my story. But timing of when to take CBD is very important If you're on certain medications, taking CBD along with those medications can make you lose the benefit of both. Mm. So um, that's that's a real risk that needs to be 
really reviewed before even taking that step. And I try to make mention of these simple tips and techniques and questions to ask your doctor in my book. So my, my book was really meant for the lay person, mm. although it's, it's peppered with scientific references. But um, I just gave you a very long answer. Short answer is I do think that there is some benefit to it. The longer answer is because all, all our body chemistries are different, taking a little time to really understand what your body's needs are I think will go a long way um, to making sure that if you do incorporate cannabis in your daily routine, that you incorporate in the safest possible way. So one of the areas I I'm, I'm, would be really curious about to talk to you about is, um, you know, you've obviously, how do I want to put this? You've obviously garnered some notoriety for your expertise in CBD and you have this related um, skincare line. How has this at all, if it has at all, um, been perceived within the medical community? Do you feel that it's impacted your reputation amongst your peers at all? Are people interested? Is it still kind of a fringe thing? How is that perceived? I think there is a growing acceptance, um, intrigue, interest. Uh, There's definitely a, a, a portion of our medical society and my peers that, you know, if, if, it, if there hasn't been a double-blinded study, you know, it might be something interesting to hear about, but they're just not going to take a step in that direction. Mm. And interestingly, after my book published, I started hearing from another set of peers uh, and doctors from other um, hospitals and said, you know, Manisha, you know, do you have some time? Can we talk? Um, I don't know if you know this, but I've been using CBD for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I really want to do a deeper dive with you to understand um, and learn more. So I'm seeing that whole range. Personally, I haven't felt that it's impacted, you know, my reputation um, or, you know, how people interact with me. But that could also be, you know, Perhaps someone's not interacting with me because of it, and I just don't <laughs> haven't realized it because I've been so busy with COVID and everything else. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. but uh, it's it's interesting. I, I'll tell you the greatest nod was my executive team at my hospital. We have two hospitals here in the District of Columbia, and when I went to my executive team a couple of years ago, I said, "You know, I'm, I'm really doing a deep dive on cannabis, and there seems to be a body of, of information showing the benefits when it comes to pain management." or um, treatment in patients are having psychological challenges with either depression or PTSD. And I would love to explore a possibility of incorporating it in a safe way to our patients in, that are hospitalized, let alone in our nursing institutions. Cassandra, I was pleasantly surprised at the support that I received from my administration. Um, from nurses, um, from other executives. They said, look, you know, we obviously have to be very judicious about the rules and regulations. You do your homework, formulate a task force, and and, and we'll take it step by step. Mm. And um, we really got to a point where we're like, okay, well, we want to have an improved pain management program. And as an arm to that pain management program, let's introduce medical cannabis. Um, everybody was involved from my 
the director of pharmacy, you know, everybody. But the one area that kept us from really taking it further was it's not federally legalized for medical cannabis. Now, CBD from hemp, again, I don't get too technical. The federal government has given a little bit of a nod, but if any institution is reliant on federal funding, so whether that's Medicare, Medicaid, um, any type of federal funding, because it's not legal on that level, wholly legal, we were unable to move forward Mm. with our efforts. So now we were hoping this past March, the federal government was going to uh, legalize it, but then COVID hit. And of course, you know, as with many things, it's taken a huge back step until our primary needs for getting through this pandemic, Yeah, you know, is, is really um, taken care of. But, but yeah, I'm seeing a lot of interest around the country um, in my home, you know, city here in the in district of Columbia, it, it's really, it, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, let me ask you about that because, um, you know, we're recording this um, at the beginning of October. I almost said September, but the year is actually going, <laughs> having gone very slow, it's suddenly going very fast now. Um, so we're recording this in uh, in the beginning of October. And you've essentially been working on the front lines in the ICU since the um, since the pandemic hit in DC. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Beginning of March, locally yeah. here for us. Okay. I think people will know what that means because they'll have seen enough news. I'm really interested in how you, as somebody who so clearly cares so deeply about your profession, you now I can just tell in the. 40 minutes or so we've been talking that you, you know, you really bring a lot of heart to your practice. And there are definitely some doctors that seem a bit more detached, maybe more into research and more intellectual about it. How have you, how have you managed your own stress and your own emotions um, through this, through this time? <sighs> you know, we have all been humbled in our profession. Doctors are viewed as, it's almost not an option. A doctor should be able to heal you. Mm. And, you know, that naturally puts a stress and obligation in our profession to be up to date and to do the right thing, to be available, to leave no stone unturned when it comes to caring for our patients. And during the pandemic, what I realized, um, there's so many different levels to this, and that sometimes the best thing that you can do is just to be present for your patients and their families, to allow for, to, to hear their voices and try to help navigate their fears, to partner with them, um, to let them know that we're all in this together and we're all going to get through this together. And it's, uh, you know, I, because I work with an amazing group of individuals. Um, nurses, for first and foremost, I have mm. the utmost respect for nurses. I mean, more so than any doctor, they're the ones that are the front line. They're the ones that are the buffers and the providers um, for care and emotional support. But um, 
I couldn't do this alone. No one can do this alone. It, it, it takes all of us caring for our patients, but also caring for each other. I think this pandemic has shown us that we can see each other. We can really mobilize our forces um, and see outside of our day-to-day, right? Um, I mean, for us, it's been 24-7. Early on in the pandemic, it was about just making sure we had enough gloves and then hand sanitizers and then body suits. Um, I went through a colleague of mine to try to see through some back channel I can find body suits from China and bring them to our little hospital here in the district, Um, working with our psychiatrists and psychologists and our pastoral care specialists in making sure that we don't overlook a whole nother side of caring with our patients, whether they're in the ICU or their loved ones that are at home and they can't come to the hospital because, you know, we've literally have shut down visitations from the get-go, which is a whole nother mm. psychological issue. But, you know, oh, this is what I tell myself every day. This was before the pandemic and it took a whole nother life during the pandemic is that we're all humans. It doesn't matter what degree you have to your name. We're all humans. We're all finding ways to to bond together, help each other, navigate through this shared um, situation, right? Mm. We don't know how long it's going to be. And the other thing is that we have to be, we have to make sure that we're kind to ourselves. Every day I'm telling people, take a moment. It's okay. Breathe. Be kind to yourself. You know, we're going to do as, as the best that we can. And sometimes our best is not that we can save somebody, but we can help them be in peace, right? In a way mm. that can limit the pain and suffering that they're going through. I mean, it's, it's a host. Uh, you can hear from my voice. I mean, there's so many emotions that are coming to bear with this question. Um, I talked about sleep. I'm not trying to be a hypocrite, but... Yeah, sleep was not the first thing that was something that I could do. It was very hard to get people to understand that sleep was important Mm. um, for a number of reasons during this time period. But I think this is one of the lessons in life, right? You have to find ways to see yourself, appreciate yourself, you know, for your capabilities, for your insecurities, but you're able to accomplish and not accomplish um, to be able to also give that to others, allow others to be themselves as well, right? Mm. Um, not pass judgment. You know, how, how do you find your purpose in life? That's a whole other topic. But and the purpose is, you know, just to be grateful for and, and feel blessed every day that you have it. Um, do what you can. And know that there's another day where you can do more. Hmm. So, it sounds simple, but it's it feels harder. I and it feels harder for even someone like me. I can only imagine um, how much harder it might be for for somebody in a medical profession in this moment in time to put that into into daily practice. Um, I mean, I not that you need you know, recognition or adulation from me, but I just think this work in 
particularly, I mean, obviously around optimal health is very important, but there's this particularly acute need in the States right now around pain pain management. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm American, uh, but I've lived in Europe on and off for a long time and a little bit in Asia. And before, in the before times, I used to travel a lot. Um, and I don't think people outside the U.S. really can comprehend just what a toll our opioid crisis is taking mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. every level. I mean, I don't know a single family that isn't affected by it in one way or another. Not everybody in the first degree, but usually it doesn't go doesn't take that many layers beyond their their immediate family to know somebody who's died or has an addiction or you know, entire communities where my my brother is. I mean, it feels like his neighborhood has just been flatlined by it to be honest and there's mm-hmm. you know quote unquote pain doctors on pretty much every corner i mean it's just it's it's a it's really really pervasive and it's there's no simple fix to it and i just i just think the work you're doing and and a lot of other people are doing to try to again sort of see what are the other levers that we can pull here because when somebody has pain and there is cheap, um, relatively cheap, affordable, you know, pain medication on the go that is highly addictive and has a whole host of other problems. I mean, it, it's it's a rational act for them to end up addicted to this in a lot of ways. And it's not the only reason people end up addicted, obviously, but it's it, certainly a big, a big part of it, it seems to me. Yeah. You know, there's, um, I mean, that, that's why I'm, I'm very intrigued with cannabis Mm. I have to ask, and you can you can tell me you don't want to get political <laughs> if you want <laughs> to. Um, but if the Supreme Court essentially strikes down the ACA, do you think that's going to make the situation better or worse? You know, I have to believe. I, I, I don't see it as as one or the other. I don't see that striking on the ACA provided. Here's a key thing. The provision for prior history of, that cannot be touched. The the pre-existing condition, yeah. Pre-existing condition. If we can preserve pre-existing condition as a physician, that's one of the top reasons why patients may not have access to healthcare unless it's through the emergency room because then you know they they can't pay for it they can't mm-hmm. pay for preventative care they can't pay for um all the things that we've talked about right mm. so i think that whichever direction we move forward and i'm not trying to pick a side or not pick a side there's certain key provisions that should not be touched pre-existing condition 100%, we should do everything to maintain that if someone has a pre-existing condition, that that would in no way impact their ability of getting the necessary care. And that care should not cause them another illness, which is their pocketbook, right? Mm-hmm. And their livelihood. Right. It should not impact that. They should not be penalized for having it. And they should not be penalized for not having a particular type of insurance, Um and getting the care that they need. Mm. Yeah. So on that note, I'd like to switch to our to our last kind of 
quick fire-ish round of questions. Okay. We call it our Tilly round. Uh-huh. What's one lesson you learned the hard way? Uh, well, it, it was not to be so judgmental. So I, I was hugely judgmental of really? myself. You were, oh my god! Because you've, yes. you've just communicated so beautifully in this last hour. This philosophy of non-judgment and but that came, that came that, that came from self evolution though. <laughs> I, I wasn't born with that. How did you learn um, that? Um, this was a number of years ago when I learned that my intentions and my actions wasn't being received in the way that I, I thought that I, I wasn't, you know, it, it was, it was a really hard lesson for me to learn about what I was really putting out there. So I could say, no, I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to do good. Look at me, look at me. Right. Um, and what was being received was, well, you're, you're not performing. And that was really hard for me to appreciate. And so it took me years of, of trying to understand how do you align yourself? Um, and then, and then to be kind to myself. I, it's, it, it really is a training. It's not something that just materialized for me. Mm. It was a training, but yes, that, that was one of the hardest things for me. What don't women talk enough about? They don't talk enough about their feelings. Contrary to popular belief, mm. I think as women, we hold so much in and that causes us um, our internal stresses, right? We take, we have the propensity to take on everybody else's responsibility uh, and be the uh, champions of other people's happiness that I think a lot of times we don't see ourselves. So that's why I was so drawn to having this conversation with you because I was like, this is just having that raw one-to-one person and having other people hear it Mm. and have a safe environment where you can express whatever you want to express is so important. But yes, I think that women need to express themselves more um, and not fear doing that. Mm. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? Oh, I, 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 my mission is, is my practice um, as a healer, as a physician. And what I felt so strongly was that I could control life. Mm. You know, with all the technology and knowledge that I can save people. And then what I realized is that it's not necessarily about saving people, but it's helping them in their journey of health. And in their journey, that outcome may not be that they are less necessarily, how do I say this? Well, how do you live your best life? So for me, that that was something that I had had to learn, that it's okay that, you know, even though I may have my own agenda, what's even more important in that relationship is the patient's agenda. Mm. And I can't force myself on another individual to accept, you know, certain treatments. Do you think that that's a motivating factor for a lot of people who go into medicine? Do you think they're trying to, I don't know, how did you put it, control life? Like, Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, 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 I can't say that I, I've read too much about what other people think, but mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, going into healthcare, whether it's being a doctor or a nurse or, or any other type of care specialist, 
it's not an easy path. I mean, it's it's years yeah. of your life that you put on hold to study, um, so you can be someone to to do good for somebody else. And the hardest lesson is sometimes you can do all that study and have all the tools, and it's just not in your hand mm. to give that person who, who who wants you to save them. It may not be in your hands to play God, mm. right? Um, and so then the question from there is communication. How do you communicate with that other individual? How do you both come to a place of understanding of what's really going on? And and again, how do you move forward in that? That's something I, I see a lot of people struggle with in the healthcare industry. They feel that, okay, I have a patient, they have blood pressure issues. So my goal is that they blood pressure has to be a systolic of, of 140 or less. And that's all they focus on. But I don't know, being in a privileged position of being in healthcare, um, it's like being somebody's priest, right? It's very sacred, it's very privileged. Yeah. But with that comes a lot of humility, humbleness, understanding, um, and responsibility. So it's, it's you know, I've, I've been a physician for over 20 years. Um, and every day of every year, I'm still learning. Mm. But I feel like I'm a better place now than I've been many years ago. When do you feel you're most powerful? Oh, I think I am most powerful when I'm one-on-one, mm. um, especially with my patients, you know, um, and their families. I think that I'm most powerful when I when I allow myself to just listen to the other individual, because that's what we ultimately want is to be able to have voice and to be heard and to be validated. And I found that when I create an environment um, for more that is to be able to do that, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Not for that individual, it's for myself as well. So I think that's, that's what I feel. Um, actually, my, my husband calls that my superpower is just, by the way, that he's mm-hmm. like, Nisha, what you do best is that you listen to people. He's like, I couldn't do that. He's mm. like, that's your superpower. So that's interesting. You've answered two questions in one then because we usually end on what are you really fucking good at? Um, <laughs> so I might ask you, what else are you really fucking good at? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't even think of those terms. <laughs> I, I, I think that I, I, I've, I can't say exercise because uh, once upon a time it's basketball and, and my <laughs> husband doesn't believe it. Um, he really is my best friend. But um, no, it's, it's just honestly, I, I think where I am in my life and what I've learned is, is just being present mm-hmm. and knowing, you know, the power of hearing somebody else is unlike anything else. And, 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 and I enjoy that. I actually enjoy hearing other people's stories, um, what their needs are, and see how I can play a small role in that, if, if that was the intent of our relationship. Mm. This has been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I'm leaving this conversation with about 100 more questions I would like to ask you. Um, but we'll probably have to leave it here for now. <laughs> Um, I'm so grateful to you for being so generous with your time. If people want to learn more about you, 
um, about the book, about your work? Where should they go? Um, absolutely, but please don't judge me. Um, I very quickly put up a website. Um, it's called it's www.docsingal. So that's D O C S I N as in Nancy G A L. So docsingal.com. So we'll put these um, in the show notes as well so people can. Oh, perfect. Um, but um, that that will give you a little insight into me. And um, if anybody personally wants to reach out to me, um, write to uh, my first name, Manisha at docsingal.com. And it'd be my pleasure to connect. Are you on the socials at all? I am. Um, so on Instagram, it's it's just my first and last name, Manisha Single. Um, on Facebook, I believe it's the same thing, Manisha Single. Um, on LinkedIn, again, Manisha Single, but with an MD. I was very creative. So. <laughs> well, no, you must, yes. have, you must have gotten on early if you've, got, if you've got the Twitter handle and the Facebook handle with just your first and last name, because now you have to add about a million numbers after the name and everything to get it. Yes, and, and there is one individual that lives um, in the tri-area where I live with my exact same name, exact same spelling. So I think I got out there before she did. So. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. I was. This is just such a thoughtful, interesting conversation and, and a jumping off point to, to go and explore more. So I really appreciate it. Cassandra, I thank you for all the work that you're doing and for giving me an opportunity to have a conversation with you. Um, please reach out anytime and and thank you for, for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help put the series in front of more badass women and a few men too by increasing how we rank. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. As always, if you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I'd love to hear from you.